Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I don't have too much for housekeeping to get through this week, other than a quick reminder that story submissions are now open. If you've got some scary tales of your own, or maybe you know somebody else who does, well, we would love to read them. Speaking of which, we've recruited some help to do just that. I'd like to take a moment to give a quick shout out to Meredith Lopez and Julia Zellman for helping us review submissions. It's great to have both of you on board. Also, before we continue our cross-country trek, I'm excited to let you know that Tales to Terrify officially has a new website, chock full of modern webby goodness. It's mobile-friendly, has an integrated media player, lets you easily explore back episodes, and provides an easy way to support the podcast, whether through Patreon or directly through PayPal. Check it out at TalesToTerrify.com and let us know what you think. And heck, while you're there, why not subscribe to our mailing list? Okay, submissions, check. Website, check. I think we're good to get back on the road. This week, we find ourselves in Iowa in the city of Council Bluffs, to be more specific. Sitting right on the border between Iowa and Nebraska, Council Bluffs, formerly known as Canesville, has plenty of history to explore. But our little field trip takes us to a somewhat unlikely destination. Unlikely for the average tourist anyway. At first blush, Fairview Cemetery looks like any other cemetery. Calm and peaceful, 
with rows of headstones cutting across the rolling, grassy hillside. But presiding over the graveyard is a particularly notorious monument. An angel. A black angel. She stands on what looks like the bow of a ship, above a small pool. In her left hand, she cradles a dish that spills water down into the basin endlessly. Her right hand is outstretched, palm up, and on her face is a look of serene, almost sad, supplication. Staring at her, it's hard not to feel that she's asking you, pleading with you, to take her hand, to disappear with her from the land of the living to whatever darkness lies beyond. Standing before the Black Angel of Council Bluffs, it's no surprise that there are multiple myths that have sprung up around her over the years, and few, it seems, are of the typical angel persuasion of forgiveness and redemption. No, like her ashen wings, they're much darker. The legend of the Black Angel really begins with Ruth Ann Dodge. Married to decorated Civil War hero Grenville Dodge, Ruth wasn't the kind of woman to simply rely on a man to take care of her. No, she was proud, outspoken, and capable. She knew how to shoot and ride, and rarely shied away from saying what was on her mind. She was known for her feisty, take-no-crap attitude, an attitude she instilled in her three daughters as well. Not long after the death of her husband in January of 1916, Ruth had an experience that would come to define her entire legacy. She was visited, she told her daughter, by an angel. In the dream, Ruth stood on the edge of a dark lake. The water was unnaturally black and glassy as it lapped gently at the rocky shore, the horizon obscured by a dense fog. As she gazed away from shore, a small boat emerged, silently and smoothly cutting through the mist, and standing at the prow of the boat was a woman, a woman more beautiful than any Ruth had ever seen, and in her hand the woman held a small bowl full of crystal clear clean water. The boat glided to shore right in front of Ruth who stood staring, frozen with awe. The woman spoke softly and clearly. Drink, she said, holding out the dish. I bring you both a promise and a blessing. But Ruth, even in her stunned dream state, could feel there was something deeper to the request. This strange, beautiful woman, she was too perfect too ethereal, even for a dream. She later told her daughter Anne that in the presence of the Supreme Being, she didn't feel ready. She didn't feel worthy of the purity this figure, this angel, had offered. Weeks passed, and Ruth couldn't seem to shake the dream. Memories of it would creep into her waking moments. Glimpses of that otherworldly shore of the figure on the boat. It wasn't long before the figure appeared in her dreams again, and she had the same simple plea. Drink, 
and again Ruth declined. But the angel was persistent. When it appeared for a third time, Ruth's conviction faltered. Her hesitation melted away. She accepted the offered vessel and drank deeply. The water was cool, perfectly clean, and oh so refreshing. It seemed to refresh her in ways she'd never known, to satisfy a thirst she wasn't aware she'd even had, to transform her into something new and glorious, she said. I drank of that wonderful water of life and it gave me immortality, she told Anne. And shortly after, just months after her husband, Ruth Ann Dodge died. It seems the transformation the angel had promised was complete. A year later, her daughters Anne and Ella commissioned sculptor Daniel French to immortalize their mother's vision in bronze. And that bronze began to patina over time, becoming darker and taking on darker legends with it. Given its roots in the visions and death of Ruth Dodge and its blackened appearance, it's no wonder the statues acquired a reputation as an angel of death. And as a result, a host of other rumors and myths have sprung up around the black angel. Some say she comes to life after sundown and flies around the graveyard, wheeling between the headstones, black wings flapping and her eyes have been rumored to burn with otherworldly flame when the clock hits midnight. There are other stories, too, of children running around the base of the statue, only to disappear, never emerging from the opposite side. But her stare, it said, is the deadliest of all. Stare into her eyes at the strike of midnight. Drink deeply of her gaze, and you may find yourself, like Ruth Dodge, facing the final moments of your mortal life. Let's spread our wings and find some darkness of our own. Time for some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from George Catronis. George Catronis is a Greek writer living in the wilderness of northern Sweden. He makes a living designing book covers. His stories have appeared in Robots and Artificial Intelligence, Lost Signals, and Turned to Ash. He edits for Kraken Press. Join me for George Catronis's A Devil Lay Here, first published in Pantheon Magazine, November 2017. I was deep in the woods, somewhere in Minnesota or maybe North Dakota. I was lost. This happens a lot. Reading maps is one of those things. It looks easy, but it's not when you try it. You look at a river, 
a mountain, a hill, and you think you know which one is which on the map. But sometimes it's not, because how would you know? It all looks the same. Before it happened, I'd never hiked in my life, too busy with high-tech distractions and my anxiety to bother. I mean, you need good boots and stuff, backpacks. Where do you start? It sounded like a lot of work to look all this stuff up, let alone walk up and down mountains with the sun beating down on you. No thanks. Now it's all I do. I've accepted a car ride now and then. The smaller roads are usually safe, but you never know when you'll hit an abandoned vehicle going 90 miles an hour. This is what societal collapse means. You're on your own and everything is different. Snow crunched softly under my boots. Winter was on its way out, but we got some late snow. It made walking harder, but I didn't mind. It was nice. I leaned against a tree and looked at the map again. If I was right, the fire tower should be close. And under at the cabin. Hopefully with some food and supplies. Maybe a gun if I'm lucky. This was the dream. Like a post-collapse version of Kirouac, I hoped this fire tower would be my salvation. Things were safer out here. Not just because there were less scary people who wanted to murder you and take your stuff, but also because the infection rarely spread so far from civilization. I guess bears could be an issue, but I had some bear spray that had so far only come in handy to keep a vagrant away who approached my camp one night. He might have been okay, but I didn't want to take the chance. Girls gotta be careful. Diesel was peeing against the tree, way too close for comfort. I would have thought a grizzled survivor like myself would have something like a pit bull or a German shepherd, mean and big. What I got was a mixed-breed corgi, short legs and way too excited about dog treats, and completely useless in a fight. Good for warming, though. I reached down and petted him. He licked my hand. Diesel has saved my life a couple of times. He's like a radar for those... things... His business done, we kept going, up the hill. If we couldn't find the tower, we just might have to wait for nightfall and see if the light at the top of the tower was still shining. I think they're battery-operated. What do you think, Diesel? You think it's battery-operated? Diesel barked but had no helpful advice. We walked on, checking the map every so often. I wasn't even sure how to tell where I was anymore. Then it got dark. When it gets dark in the forest, it happens scary fast. I never travel in the dark, unless something is after me and I have no choice. The flashlight makes you a target that's very easy to track. Meanwhile, you only see what you're pointing the flashlight at. Easy to get jumped. Easy to get killed. I walked as far as the clearing and looked around. No red light. We were either right on top of it or nowhere near it. I decided to give it another half hour. We pressed on. The tower still stood. So did the cabin. The last one had been a burned husk. The tower ransacked of everything useful. The rest destroyed. People are assholes. This one had potential, though, especially if there was a well. I checked the cabin for any spray paint tags. 
something that implied someone had been here after the collapse, or that the occupant was dead. It looked clear. I looked at Diesel, a bit anxious maybe, but no signs of worry so far. That was good. I trusted him. Standard procedure. I used the back of my trusty hand axe and banged on the door a few times, loud as I could. Stepped back and raised the axe above my head, ready to attack. Nothing. Hello? I took a step forward. Is there anyone in there? I won't hurt you. Looks clear, I said to Diesel. I opened the door and shone the light inside. It was pitch black. The cabin's interior looked okay, a bit dusty maybe. A couch, a fireplace, vague furniture shapes in the dark. A musky smell emanated. Maybe water got in somewhere. Hello? I took three steps inside before Diesel started barking. He's usually better at this. I turned around, frantically scanning the room. There was nothing that I could see. What is it, boy? Where is it? He was barking at the ceiling. The thing that unfurled itself from the roof beams used to be an animal of some sort. Now its writhing flesh was a mess of appendages and pustules. Its strong limbs held onto the wood with bloody bone claws. The eyes glowed pale blue in the dark. I fell down trying to back away from it and scrambled to my feet on the wrong end of the cabin. The creature between me and the door. This is why you're careful when entering abandoned buildings. Sometimes these things get there first and make their nest. This one was the size of a large dog. It was probably a wolf or a fox before it turned. But most of its features were now gone, except for the snout. It had no fur its skin pink like a stillborn kitten's. Diesel was going crazy, barking and growling at it, drawing its attention. One eye on the beast, I laid my backpack on the floor and rummaged in it for the thirty-eight. I had just the one bullet, which is why I rarely had it on me. Emergencies only. I looked in the chamber and made sure the bullet would be there when the hammer fell down. Just one shot. The creature was moving now, crawling along the ceiling, as it tried to get closer to Diesel. It was too dark to take the shot, the creature too fast and too erratic for me to predict where its head was going to be. Diesel ran in circles, snapping his jaws at the tentacles, whipping around, trying to grab him. Get him, Diesel, I yelled. The creature turned to me, and that's all it took for Diesel to grab one of those tentacles in its mouth. It screamed, a sound like a fox caught on a trap, followed by a gurgling sound that made me queasy. Diesel didn't let go as the tentacle tried to shake him off. I aimed the gun and pulled the trigger just as the monster threw my dog across the room. It slumped off the beams and fell to the floor with a wet thud. Diesel hit the wall, leaving blood behind him. Diesel! I screamed. I ran to him and felt his body, checking for wounds. His head was bleeding. I carried him to my backpack and took out the first aid kit I had liberated from a truck we found, parked at the head of the trail. At least this was something I knew how to do. I pressed a bandage to his head while I looked for the iodine and the needle for the stitches. 
Diesel was asleep, his breathing steady. I didn't know if he was going to make it. I wasn't prepared for the alternative. This new world was a struggle, but a stupid dog like Diesel was almost enough to make it worth it. I didn't know what I'd do without him. So I waited. I dragged the monster's corpse outside, far away from the cabin. I'd have to either bury it or burn it. If any other animals got to it, there could be more mutations. But I wasn't going to attempt that in the dark. I barricaded the door as well as I could, then explored the cabin. This was supposed to be my reward. Now it was ruined. This wasn't worth it if I lost my only friend for it. But I still needed the supplies, so I did my best. The pantry was well stocked. I didn't linger. But there was enough canned food to last me a few weeks. There was also an old lantern that would come in handy, as long as I could get fuel for it. I lit it and turned the flashlight off, saved my batteries. I checked on Diesel again. There was an axe, a crowbar, a compass, and some other tools, as well as maps and some notebooks. All good. Matchsticks, a few rolls of toilet paper, gold, and a fully stocked first aid kit. I could probably sell this one. It was a good haul. I wish that Diesel would make it. The lantern was mostly empty, so I turned it down low and let it burn as I laid down my sleeping bag. I held Diesel's paw in my hand as I fell asleep. I woke up to whimpering. My dreams had been vivid and confusing. I dreamt that Diesel died, that I died. Someone came in and shot me. Then I was sinking. I jerked awake, scanning the room for the source of the sound. Diesel was gone. There was blood and fur on the little towel I laid down for him. It was dark in the cabin, with the door closed. I felt around for my flashlight, found it and turned it towards the exit. The creature was big, the size of a motorcycle. It stood on four legs, its fur a deep blue that seemed to shimmer under the light. Tentacle-like appendages erupted from its back. As it turned to stare at me, I recognized the eyes. It still looked like Diesel in some ways. Its legs were a little too short for its body. The snout was the same. It had been scratching at the door. The wood scratched away in places. The gun was empty. All I had was the axe. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to use it. What was the point anyway? To live another day alone and unable to trust anyone for fear of getting murdered? I'd make a play. I wouldn't raise a weapon against my dog. But if he wanted to get out, I'd give him the choice. I stood up slowly and approached him. He didn't move. He turned to look at the door again, and my heart broke just like he always did when he wanted to be let out in the morning. Only this was a three-feet-tall monster that could tear me apart in seconds. I unlocked the door and pushed it open. The thing that used to be Diesel ran out and into the woods. I had been holding my breath. I let it out slowly. This was it. 
After roaming around the countryside with me for a year and a half, Diesel was gone. I cried for a little while, then went back inside. There was a lot to do. Secure the windows, climb the tower in case there was something I could use, scope out the area, make some plans. If there was a town nearby, I could stay here and make supply runs. It was a good place to settle at least for a little while. I threw my axe against the wall and sat on the floor. I should have protected him. I knew this could happen. The infection spread so easily in animals. All it takes is a cut, some blood, and that's it. I buried my head in my hands and stayed like that for what felt like hours. I didn't hear the clicking of claws on the wooden floor but I did feel the rough tongue licking my hands and face. I looked up, straight into the mouth of the beast. Diesel. I reached out and petted its head. It rubbed itself against my hand. Hey, Diesel, you came back. He lay down at my feet and let me rub his belly. Tentacles splayed out on the floor. That was George Catronus's A Devil Lay Here, as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as The No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. Thank you, Nicole. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story for the evening comes to us from Jenny Blackford. Jenny is an author and poet based in Newcastle, Australia. Her stories have appeared in venues including Penumbra, Cosmos Magazine, and Pulp Literature, as well as Australian and international anthologies. Pamela Sargent called her subversively feminist historical novella set in ancient Greece, The Priestess and the Slave, elegant. She won two prizes in the 2016 Sisters in Crime Australia Scarlet Stiletto Awards for a murder mystery set in classical Delphi with water nymphs. Join me, children of the night, for Jenny Blackford's The Sacrifice. After Aedes found out what Medea had dared to do, he set off in pursuit of the ship. But when Medea saw that Aedes was near, she murdered her brother, tore him limb from limb, and threw the pieces into the depths. Apollodorus, Library, 2nd Century, B.C. Medea could feel that something was wrong. On the surface, everything seemed under control. The late morning sun glinted off the oiled muscles of the Achaean heroes who were straining at the oars, rowing the Argo away from Colchis and her furious father. The square linen sail billowed above the black ship. No human force could catch up with them now. Jason, her beautiful Jason, stood at the prow of the Argo, gazing across the black sea toward his home in Thessaly. When they'd fled together in the night with the golden fleece, Jason had put Medea at the stern of his ship, saying she'd be safest there. She was a virgin princess, precious, barely fifteen. It was his duty to see that she was protected. Perhaps she truly was safer there. Perhaps. But Jason, at the ship's prow, was so far away from her. Fifty deep-muscled Achaean heroes swearing and shouting on their benches divided her from him. It had to be thirty paces or even more. She burned with thwarted desire for Jason. She'd have killed just to have been standing next to him. The other heroes dead or disappeared. The ship silent and still. All it would take, she knew, was a single drop of one of her more dangerous potions dripped into the goatskin water bottle that the Argonauts passed around from bench to bench as they rode, and they'd all be silent in minutes. 
Then she could run to her beautiful Jason through the length of the ship, across the benches, and throw herself into his gleaming arms. Medea was sure that her potion would work if she used it. She had tested it on dozens of slaves back home in her father's palace in Colchis. But Jason wanted her safe, here, in the stern of his ship, so far away from him. How could she fail to do as her beloved wished? Obediently, she stayed where he had placed her, standing on the small hind deck. She inched as far as she could get from Ancaios, the steersman. A pace away, the deck ended. She could have leant down and touched the first pair of the sweaty Achaean heroes who sat at their oars in the hollow of the ship between her and Jason, but they were nothing to her. Just looking at Jason, she felt her bones almost dissolve within her from joy and desire. On Mount Olympos, the Rhineck turned on the wheel. The speckled bird writhed its mobile neck and flicked its snake-like tongue in pain. But lovely Aphrodite had strapped its wings and legs securely to the four spokes of the magic wheel. There was no escape. Hera, queen of Olympos, stood at Aphrodite's shoulder and nodded in approval at the bird's pain. Medea burns with love for Jason, Hera said. You have done well. Sometimes the old ways are the best. My son, Eros's arrows are powerful, Aphrodite said. But this ancient magic is stronger. Hera nodded. Magic from the time when Gaia and Oranos ruled all, and you and I had not yet been dreamt of. It is well that you employ it now. I must have my revenge on Polias. That uncle of Jason's was a fool to cross you, Aphrodite said, and turned the wheel again. The Rhineck writhed, but it would never escape the wheel. Medea would never escape her love for Jason. Treacherous Pelias wouldn't have a chance against Medea when his nephew Jason brought her to his home in Thessaly. Medea was no mortal woman. Something was wrong. Medea bit hard on her lip to make herself look away from her new love, her only love, her beautiful Jason. Deliberately, she closed her eyes and turned her back on the hero then opened them again to look across the waves toward her homeland of Colchis and the father whom she had betrayed for Jason's sake. She had to concentrate. All her instincts told her that it was necessary. She held her breath, studying the horizon, but still there was no sign of pursuit from home. Her vengeful father was not going to catch them. Thank all the gods. These Achaean heroes were uncivilized brutes, but they were wonderful horsemen. Medea turned back, carefully keeping her eyes away from Jason. She started to scan the ship as Jason scanned the horizon, but with her mind more than her eyes. As her father's sister Circe had taught her, she breathed slowly from the center of her body and let the seed around her fade away. Beneath her feet, under the stern's oak decking, the golden fleece was hung over a bronze tripod. The fleece, the most precious treasure of her father Aedes, glowed with all the energy of her father's own father, Helios. She smiled. It had been so simple to trick the unsleeping dragon that guarded it. She hadn't even had to kill the dragon or use any serious sorcery. All she'd had to do was sing to the serpent quietly 
and to flick a soothing potion into its huge golden eyes with a young juniper sprig. It had been child's play. Medea patted her precious chest of pharmaca. The potions in it and the tools were worth far more than gold to her. It would help to buy Jason the kingdom that his father had been cheated of back in Achaean Thessaly. Soon he would be revenged against his treacherous uncle, and Medea would be queen of Iolcos and bear Jason's children, noble princes and princesses, and he would love her forever. But she couldn't think about that, not now. She breathed deeply again and focused. She could sense another blazing source of energy between the burning fleece and the ship's enchanted wood. Her brother, Absurtos, curled up like a puppy, fast asleep. <sighs> she sighed. He should not have been there, in an Achaean ship. The little stowaway should have been safe with his mother back home in Colchis. But he had followed her as she had fled Eris's sacred grove with Jason and the Fleece, and she had found him too late to take him home without being captured herself and being punished by her father. Powerful Aedes would do far worse than kill her if he caught her. Her brother, Espertos, was one problem, but not the problem that she knew she had to find. So what was it? Distasteful, though it was, she cast her mind from rowing bench to rowing bench, listening as the heroes entertained one another with tales of their past triumphs, or more often, fantasies of what they would do to Jason's new barbarian whore when he wasn't looking. Fools! Didn't they know who her grandfather was? Why had her glorious Jason chosen this motley collection of over-muscled thugs to travel with him on his voyage to Colchis to seek the Golden Fleece? Oh, she had to admit, one or two were truly heroes. Orpheus could sing like a god, and twins Castor and Polydukes were sons of great Zeus, just as her father Aedes was son of fiery Helios. Heracles' reputation was impressive, but the monster slayer was no longer on the ship. He had deserted Jason on the way to Colchis, after his pretty young squire, Hulas, disappeared into the woods. The rest of the Argonauts, though? Medea shook her head. The heroes' bodies gleamed under a thin layer of olive oil. A few of them wore breechcloths or short kilts of embroidered linen like Jason's, but most of them were naked except for their jewelry. Heavy gold armbands, bronze anklets, exotic concoctions of metals and precious stones around their necks. The poorest slave in her father's palace wore more clothing than these men, yet they dared to call her a barbarian. The heroes looked at her with lust and contempt in their eyes as they rode, but it meant nothing to her. She was Jason's, and they must not touch her. Everyone knew that. Medea was sure now that the problem wasn't on the ship. So where was it? She wished that she could see the earth as her grandfather could, burning brightly high in the sky. She turned in a circle, searching the distant horizon for danger. There! What was that golden flash? She closed her eyes and sent her mind out over the water as far as she dared. There were nine ships, eight of them painted red, one of them flaring golden. Her father and his fleet, moving far faster than oars and sail could propel them. She could feel the lines of power drawing them through the water. Aedes had called upon his father, inexorable Helios, and Helios 
had answered. Despair flooded through Medea. The Rhinek turned on its wheel. Hera, queen of the Olympian gods, consort of mighty Zeus, looked down at Aedes' ships and smiled. Medea stood, numb with misery, and watched as Aedes' ships gained on them with unnatural speed. There was no point giving the alarm, since before dawn the Achaeans had been rowing as only men in fear of their lives could row. Perhaps if Heracles had been here, his mighty muscles could have pulled them away even from her father's ships. But the great hero was far away, seeking his lost squire. The end was inevitable. Her father would be on them within the hour, and all would be dead. Except her. Aedes would have punishments more inventive than death planned for the daughter who'd betrayed him so disgracefully. She shuddered at the thought. When Medea closed her eyes, she saw the Argo full of blood. Body parts floated in a red lake of blood. There was Jason's beautiful head, Orpheus's lyre arm, and poor Esperta's little foot, smaller even than her own. More body parts floated on the waves outside the half-wrecked ship. Her stomach heaved. But she was no mortal woman. She drew herself up to her full height and set the nausea aside. What could she do to avert this future? Surely no god or goddess would help an impious daughter against the father she had dishonored. The gods were always mindful of the duty of a child to her parents. Even fiery Helios, who'd once taken her up in his chariot, would not protect her now. Her father Aedes had far greater claim to his powerful father's assistance. But there was one goddess who perhaps would not turn away from her. Hecate, help me now, she whispered. I have always served you, goddess. Threefold, Hecate was the power behind Medea's sorcery. But would even Hecate, thonic goddess of crossroads, of roadside graves, of thresholds, help her worshipper after what she'd done? All her short life, Medea had honored the goddess with the sacrifices that pleased Hecate's somewhat specialized taste. Red mullet, scavengers that they were, illuminated cakes bright with tiny torches, and puppies, tender and playful. The dark goddess had no interest in the dull oxen and docile sheep beloved of Zeus and his family on high Olympus. Ever since Medea had been old enough to hold the knife, she had slit the soft throats of innumerable puppies for Hecate, butchered them at the crossroads, and used the sacred flame to share the flesh with her companions and the goddess. But here on the ship, there was nothing to sacrifice to gain Hecate's goodwill. Medea's precious chest of Firmica was already dedicated to the witch goddess. To burn it would give the goddess nothing new. Apart from that, all Medea now owned were the clothes she was wearing. She had fled the palace by night, with no thought but to help Jason steal the golden fleece, her father's most precious treasure. Perhaps, she thought, she should sacrifice her clothes to the goddess, the wools and linens that she had wrapped around her body before she had run to the sacred grove of Ares to steal the fleece, were finely woven and encrusted with silver thread and tiny pearls. Perhaps she could burn them, sacrifice them to Hecate, beg one of Jason's cloaks to wrap her virgin body in. But it was hopeless. What would the goddess want with her clothes? 
The immortal gods delighted in blood and gold, not in wool and linen. There must be some way she could propitiate the goddess. Medea heard Absurtus murmur in his sleep. From under the stern deck she stood on. She smiled. Her puppyish brother was the sweetest of siblings. Then her blood ran cold within her. As surely as she had ever known anything, she knew the sacrifice that Hecate required from her. On Olympos, the Rhineck turned on its wheel, writhing in fear and pain. Cow-eyed Hera looked down at Medea. Show us how much you love him, she said. Show us how far you will go for Jason's sake, virgin granddaughter of Helios. Cyprian Aphrodite gave her sexy, throaty laugh. <laughs> you were right, Hera. Jason's foolish uncle will regret dishonoring you when the Argo reaches his home. So when Medea saw the sail approaching, she said, We are trapped, and I must delay father by some deceptive ruse. While she was planning what she should do, while she was looking everywhere, she happened to glance at her brother. Noticing him, she said, We've won. His death will ensure my safety. Ovid, Tristia, 1st century A.D. Sick to her stomach, Medea knelt on the deck and searched her little chest of pharmaca for the right parcel. There it was, the juice of poppies, full of the power of the earth and the sun, solidified into a sticky resin wrapped in wax. She took half of her parcel, more than half. Now was not the time to stint. He must feel nothing of what she had to do to him. Holding the chest of pharmaca, ignoring the looks of the rowers only a pace or two away from her, Medea jumped from the small deck down into the hollow ship itself and crept under the decking. The rowers on the bench nearest her gaped and mumbled, but she had no time to reply, not even to glare. She had to save Jason from her father's anger. Oh, how she wanted him! There was Absurtos still fast asleep, half under the glowing fleece. Next to the boy and fleece, heaped together under the decking, were the Argonauts, food supplies, olive oil, barley, sweet wine, clean water, and honey. Fiercely holding back her tears, Medea took a golden cup from the pile of loot the men had gathered on the way to Colchis. She placed the poppy resin into it, then struggled with a small jar, got off its lid at last, scooped out honey with a silver spoon and dripped it into the cup. Kneeling in the hull of the ship, her slender flanks touching the soft, warm side of her sleeping brother's body, she stirred and stirred until the resin and the honey made a smooth golden mixture. Next, she found an amphora of sweet wine. It smelled of autumn, of figs and raisins, and she poured it into the cup. The tears started, and she could not stop them. There was shouting above her. The men had finally seen her father's ships. They were screaming strategy to one another, swearing eternal friendship. Let them row harder if they could. Let these warlike heroes strap on the fine swords and bronze shields that were always at their sides. It would be no use against Helios' son, Aedes. Medea whispered quietly over the cup as she stirred, a dedication to Hecate. Her tears dripped steadily into the mixture. But she could not cease stirring, or they would all die. <laughs> all except her. The incantation finished. She moved Absurtos' sleeping head into her lap. Here, she said. She stroked his tender curls. 
Drink this, my own sweet darling. You know I'll always love you. Her brother had not slept the night before as they were fleeing, the poor little pet, and he was only six years old. Medea herself was only nine years older. How had she come to this? Absurtos woke just far enough to sip obediently at the cup and sip again until the drink was gone. Then he smiled up at her and closed his eyes. She stroked his head until he slept again and listened for his breathing to change. The tears ran freely down her face now. The minutes passed, but she could do nothing until the drug took hold. What if her father boarded the ship before she could do what she had to do? At last, though, she heard the change in Absurtos' breathing that she had waited for. The poppy juice resin had suffused his body. He would feel no pain. Taking up a water skin, she dribbled a few drops of water on his head. He moved his head gently, assent to the sacrifice. Good. She took half a handful of barley from an open sack and poured it softly over his curls. Next, she took the sharpest knife from her chest the strange tool of gray star metal that her Aunt Circe had given to her, and stuck it in her belt, then gently lifted the unconscious boy out of his nest in the fleece. She put the warm, soft bundle up onto the decking she had been standing on earlier, before her life had changed, and climbed up beside him. By now, her father's golden ship was no more than fifty paces away from the Argo. She could see the fury in the king's eyes. It was time. She knew what she had to do. She carried Absurtos to the curving post at the very back of the ship. She leant out over the waves, holding him tightly. Then, in one terrible movement, she slit his throat as she had slit the throats of so many puppies in sacrifice to Hecate. Take the sacrifice! My lady Hecate! She screamed. He is yours! I beg you! Keep Jason safe and his people. The warm blood streamed over the side of the ship and into the water. This sacrifice was different. There was no altar here, no sacred flame. Absurtos would not be part of a sacrificial feast, his butchered body, a meal to be shared between the dark goddess and her worshippers. His thigh bones would not be wrapped in fat and burned with incense as the goddess's portion. His heart and liver would not be grilled over the flame for the worshippers, nor his flesh boiled in a pot until it was tender and eaten. But just like a puppy given to the goddess, he must now be butchered. The tears streamed down her face. Her precious knife of star metal cut through Absurtos' tender left ankle, no thicker than a puppy's neck. She shuddered as she grasped the disconnected foot and threw it into the wake of the boat. And she heard her father scream. She watched Haiti's face as the little foot bobbed in the wake of the Argo, closer and closer to her father's golden ship. Soon, Haiti's men stopped rowing, and three men dived from the ship, swimming fast in the direction of the foot. Medea's father must have given the only possible order. He could not leave the tiniest piece of his child's body unburied, or the boy would never rest. Hecate had accepted the sacrifice and saved them. As Medea sliced through Absurtos's bony little knee, she heard near silence behind her. The Argonauts were rowing again, rowing fit to save their lives. She sobbed loudly as she threw her brother's calf into the sea. 
how many pieces would she need to cut him into to hold off her father long enough for the Argo and our beloved Jason to escape? Jason stood on the deck at the prow of the ship, white-faced, staring at the barbarian princess who had helped him win the Golden Fleece. Medea was not like the tender girls of Achaia. She was scarcely more than a child, barely marriageable, but she'd won their safety against all odds. Aedes' formidable fleet was at a standstill, collecting body parts that bobbed on the waves behind the ship. Jason watched, sick to the stomach, as Medea cut off her brother's hands, his forearms, his upper arms, one by one, and threw them, piece by piece, into the ship's wake. How sharp was that strange gray knife? How could a young girl like that do this terrible thing? She turned to look at him. Tears ran down her face. Her brother's body in her arms was just a bloody torso. The boy's head nodded on a limp neck. Jason couldn't look at her. He ran for the side of the ship and wretched. No crime is too wicked for Medea's hands. Ovid, Heroides, late first century B.C. On Olympos, the Rhineck turned on its wheel. The two goddesses laughed and laughed. That was Jenny Blackford's The Sacrifice, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a bodrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she gets the chance. Thank you, Michelle. Well, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We love what we do here at the podcast, but we couldn't do it without your support. Plus, we've got all kinds of deliciously frightful extras brewing for our supporters that you won't want to miss out on. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we infest your brain with more Tales to Terrify.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.